Welcome to Behind the Job Title Podcast. Ever wanted to know what makes someone at work tick? Why does someone desire to be the best at what they do? Or how does a colleague spend time away from the office or wherever their place of work is? I, Damien Swaby, invite industry professionals to discuss and celebrate their careers, lives and future. All of this and more on Behind the Job Title Podcast. But, but, I should say, but, yes. I've got to remember my T's, but, <laughs> <laughs> how are you today? I'm doing wonderfully. I couldn't be better, actually. Brilliant, brilliant. I'm glad to hear that. You're doing wonderful. And you told me earlier that you, you have some positive news, which is good. It's good to have positive news especially for someone like yourself who I find to be incredibly positive no matter what uh, I love that about you and it's um it's how do I say the words I'm looking for and I think positivity can leap on someone and make them even more positive do you know what I mean so well, it's even best when it leaps on you because it is a choice it's it's you have to actually make a choice to look at things in a positive way to, to be positive. It's it's not nas- necessarily something that's natural. Although if you've grown up around parents who tend to be more like that, you will you pick up on it more easily. I'll say that. I didn't grow up with parents who were always positive. I wouldn't you say didn't. that. I'm sorry to hear that. Oh, no, 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 not at all. I, I, I think given, given the different cultures that people come from, there are some cultures that don't believe in positivity. Uh, my, my father's family is Jewish and then Jewish culture, it's like life is just hard. You deal with it, you try to make the best of it, but uh, it's not necessarily meant to be happy. And it's like, well, I don't know if I would agree with that. It's happiness is what you make of it. And, and we were just talking a little bit earlier about why I'm so thrilled right now. I had lost my cat almost three weeks ago and here in Texas in record heat, with no rain over the last three weeks, you'd think no indoor animal stands a chance outside in this kind of weather. And I fairly much lost hope. I've tried everything one can do to get her back. And there was nothing but dry leads as I went to follow up anything that could possibly be where she was. And as we were in Dallas yesterday, my partner got a, a message on his phone that there was a black cat in our neighborhood about three blocks from where I live, which I thought, well, that at least fits what a cat might do. They don't go too far from home, but it probably isn't her. And then they said, well, she's got a collar and a tag. And I thought, my cat had a collar and a tag, but wouldn't you actually check the tag and be able to return the animal to its owner? But apparently that didn't happen. And we've been searching everywhere. And even last night, three times in that neighborhood, searching all over that neighborhood, calling her. And she comes when I call, but there was nothing. And so this morning, uh, about an hour or so before this call, I got up and I thought, well, I'll check one more time before it gets hot again. And I went out there and searched around. And probably after about 15, 20 minutes, as I was about to give up, I called one last time in the direction of the house. They said they saw the cat near. And suddenly she just walks across the yard over to me. Uh, I was just shocked. I thought, oh my God, there she is, like it was nothing. And uh, so up here she comes now screaming. But uh, so it was, 
it was just very, very exciting to, to see that even though people are saying, don't give up hope. And I'd pretty much just been a realist and just thinking there's just no way, you know, something had to have gotten her. She had to have been killed. There's just no reason why she wouldn't have come home. And for whatever reason, she would, this was her. So we just absolutely on cloud nine. So I'm so happy to hear that she's come back. Um, that's uh, amazing news, obviously, for cat lovers and just decent people across the world, I guess. But what was it like growing up for you? Did you have any cats, any pets at all? I did have a cat. For, well, first I had a dog. And after she died a fairly violent death uh, or a very difficult death, uh, I... I said, I don't ever want another animal again, which is pretty much what most animal lovers say after they lose one of their favorite pets is I could not go through this again. But one of the great gifts that pets offer us not only is unconditional love, but also the fact that we're probably gonna lose them before we go. And learning how to let go of something you love is natural for life because for the most part, it's a limited period of time we're here. You, you don't get to be here forever. And, and sometimes you outlive those you love, such as my parents and mm. my favorite animals and such. But they, they teach you, instead of being perhaps depressed about losing them, uh, perhaps look at it from a different perspective. And so if you can just look at the fact that you had that wonderful love and that great relationship for when you had it, and some people never get that chance, that you should just be grateful for what you had versus focusing on the loss. And that helps in dealing with the grief, I think. And to me, that's a good attitude about life. One of my favorite stories to tell people about is how close I was to my father. And although I wasn't close as a kid, but when we, when we were adults, we got to be a lot closer and I got to really understand my father uh, with all his faults and wonderful things too. And, and I just loved my dad for who he was. And he died at a fairly young age. He was in his 60s when he died. And um, it was pretty sudden. And it was a bit shocking. And it was over 23 years ago. And actually, this year was the year he died on June 19th, which was Father's Day back then. And it was Father's Day this time on that actual date. So I never forget the day he died. Uh, yeah. And, and when, when I mentioned that it was Father's Day, people usually think, oh, my gosh, that must be so hard for you. And I've never really thought of it that way before, because every time Father's Day comes around, the only challenge I have is how to do something different this year to celebrate his life. And whether it's putting something out on Facebook or mm -hmm. whatever I can do to, to demonstrate to people how valued he was, not only back then, but how much he plays a role in our lives today because he shapes who I am and I shaped my nieces and nephews. I shaped my great nieces and nephews lives because of who he was. So he still lives on in many ways. And even though I can't talk to him, it's still he's very much a part of my life. And I'm very grateful that I had that relationship with him, even though he's been gone 23 years now. If he was still with us today, what do you think he would think of you and how would he view the life that you are living right now? Oh, my, my dad would be absolutely thrilled. I mean, his worst fear was that I was going to die when everyone predicted I was going to die, which was at the age of 30. Well, now I'm 62, so obviously I wasn't going to die that young. Well, thank you. Thank you. And uh, 
I never expected to live to see my 60s. And that's a whole different set of issues, realizing, wow, now I've got to deal with the fact that I don't have that much time left and my body's falling apart. And I'm not too happy about some of this, but I've got to learn to accept it because it is what it is. <laughs> As a matter of fact, this year, I have to deal with the fact that I've got to get both of my shoulders replaced because of osteoarthritis. And it's just difficult to even lift my arms up a little bit higher than this. But you know, I could have had it a lot worse, so I'm not going to complain. But you know, these are these are old people problems, and I never thought I would ever live to be an old person. So my father always made it clear to me that no matter what, he was proud of me. Uh, it was one of those things that perhaps men want more than anything in their lives, but their fathers generally don't demonstrate that kind of unconditional love to their sons. So they're often desperate for that father's approval or father's love. And I don't have to wonder. I'm absolutely confident that my father loved me, was proud of me, uh, was, and, and hopefully proud of the work he had done as a father, which is most parents' great, greatest fears, which is that somehow they weren't good enough as a parent. And it's like, look, you did the best you could. You were wonderful. You were loving. I couldn't have asked for more. No one's perfect. And so hopefully he would be proud of the, his part of me being who I am. And I, I would hope that. And, and I probably would expect that if he was alive today. What happened in your life that led you being told you only had three and a half years left to live? And how did your father react to that situation? Ah, well, uh, this was back in the early 80s. Uh, I'd say in 1985, uh, one of my best friends, my first gay roommate, uh, and, and one of my dearest friends had moved away and moved to San Francisco. And so in that, uh, later that year, he called me and told me he was in the hospital and that he had AIDS and that they told him he was dying. And so he was going to be going home to die. And that came as such a shock to me because we were the same age. We were both in our mid twenties and, he was now going home to North Carolina to die amongst his family, who was not very accepting of him being gay at all. They were uh, fundamental Christians and did not deal with this issue, especially back then, well at all. But as long as he renounced his, his uh, homosexuality and was born again under the Lord, then obviously he would be saved or whatever would happen to him. But he went home. And, uh, and that was one of the last times I did see him one more time before he died, but I had to make the decision that at this point I was going to, my life was pretty much almost over. And yet it also had just started. I had just come out about two years before could finally be myself, could finally have friends that I trusted. I was building a great, um, cadre of, of supportive people in my life and was incredibly happy, had a career that was going well. Uh, I, you know, I was 26 years old or almost, I was 25 at that point and life couldn't have been better. And then suddenly I was given the news that I was going to die from AIDS the same way my roommate was dying. And the only reason why I got tested was because of him, because I felt completely healthy. So I had no reason to think it could be me. And besides, I lived in Houston. No one in Houston gets it. Only people in New York or San Francisco, LA. Those are the people who got AIDS, not, not people in the middle of America. Why did you think that? Well, because everyone back then was ignorant. And we all <laughs> want to believe that these problems don't happen to us. 
We all want to believe it's going to be someone else. And if we can't relate to them, then it's not our problem. It's such an innately human response to these situations. I mean, I could go into talking about COVID and other issues too and how similar those things are. But the whole point is, is that uh, I didn't believe it could happen to someone like me. Besides, I didn't sleep around a lot. I didn't, uh, you know, I wasn't the type of person that I thought could be at risk. And yet I went ahead and got tested thinking, no, it's not going to be, it's not possible. And they called me in and they said, you know, I'm HIV positive. I probably have AIDS and I don't have much time left in my life. So I might want to start taking care of my issues. And besides, I had high cholesterol. I might want to look at that too. Oh, gosh. What the hell does cholesterol have to do with it? That's <laughs> something that kills you in your 60s and 70s. Yeah. I'm not worried about cholesterol. So I had some choice words to say to that doctor at the time. But at that point, it was a fact that if you had HIV, you literally only had at best a few years left. And so all of my hopes and dreams at that point were dashed and I had to refigure out my life. I quit my job. I had just gotten into a relationship and didn't know how to deal with that issue. I didn't know how to tell my parents. I hadn't even told them I was gay at that point. Gosh. And uh, so that would, it's like, how do you give this news to them? So I thought I'd better do it a little at a time. So first I broke the news that I was gay and waited almost a year before I told them about the HIV thing. But they didn't take it very well, as you could imagine, because, you know, they felt like it was out of their control. What could they do about it? And suddenly their son was going to die. And they didn't say anything to me about it, but they were pretty devastated. They told me later, but uh, yeah. uh, I did not know it at the time because they wouldn't show that at all. They were just being optimistic and helpful. That's good. That's great to hear that they were able to be optimistic and helpful. Were they not religious like your best friend at the time's parents? Thank goodness, no. Uh, no, my parents, uh, my mother was Catholic when she was raised and my father was raised Jewish, but not very religious. And so they decided to kind of raise us in the middle, Unitarians. And Unitarians can kind of believe whatever they want to believe. And a lot of that religious stuff, even though it gives some people comfort and such, it's like it didn't make any sense to me. It just yeah. didn't add up. And my mother, who loved the church because it had all the answers, when we decided to go back to the Catholic Church at the age when I was 12, um, my mother thought it would go back and help her, you know, get back to her roots and find some sense in life again when she was so depressed. And she found the church had changed. And suddenly this, this institution that never changes at all, she came back to it and it wasn't the same institution at all. And so she lost complete faith in, you know, this being what she thought it was and decided she needed to find her own spirituality. And so she went on her own search and you know, found what she believed to be true. I found what I believe to be true. So I, I, I certainly don't think many religions come close to what the truth is. Uh, so it just doesn't, it's not very helpful to me. Uh, but I do like the idea that prayer makes people feel that there's hope in life and it gives you know to believe that something has some control in their life when they don't feel they have control i can see how powerful that can be for people so i get why they what they went why they may find religion important or helpful in their lives i just don't it, it doesn't it's not a fit for me and i already seem like i have all the answers so i don't need that i'm not searching 
for answers. I, you could never convince me to believe anything different than what I already believe, which I think is pretty amazing. So life makes sense to me. So I'm doing just great as it is. And when you got the, the news, you said you quit your job. Work mm-hmm. means a lot to all of us for many different reasons. Why exactly did you quit your job? What, what were you working as at the time? And how did you think you would survive for the limited time that you was told you were going to be alive for? Uh, well, again, it's a long story, but I'll keep it short. I was a psychology major in college, and I, uh, I had decided that, well, you can't really make a living there unless you get your PhD, and I wasn't going to go do that. So I decided that, well, I sort of fell into the financial industry and became a stockbroker eventually um, working my way up to a company like like Merrill Lynch and working for what I thought would be a very respectable company. Well, it is a respectable company, but uh, it wasn't my passion. I'm not a salesperson per se. It didn't didn't fit every need I wanted to fit all. It didn't check every box that I was looking for to complete my life. And one area it didn't really make as much of a difference in is that Helping people financially is is helpful, but it didn't make a big difference in their lives. I wanted a bigger impact on people's lives, and I wasn't sure at the time what that would be. And after about a year or so of searching around and going back to graduate school and working on my master's in psychology, I thought, I'm going to get into the area of wellness. I love that area. Teaching people how to be well mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically, in every area. I love that idea. And so I thought that would be the perfect fit, fit for me. Amazing. But at, this, at the same time, though, I the whole AIDS crisis started ramping up. And my boyfriend at the time that I just mentioned when I was diagnosed was one of the founders of AIDS Foundation Houston. So when I was struggling for what to do with my life, I decided, well, at least I'll start volunteering and see if I can make a difference. So I joined the AIDS hotline and started volunteering there and found I loved teaching people about this disease, teaching people about safer sex, uh, trying to uh, educate people about something I thought would really make a big difference in people's lives. And to me, that was a great fit for the time, especially thinking I was going to be dead in a few years anyways. So what am I going to do that gives my life any meaning in just a few years? And I thought, well, at least I can make a difference here in this growing crisis. And as I kept doing my volunteer work, suddenly there were funds that became available in early 1987 for education. And for the first time, they expanded their HIV education departments and asked if I'd be willing to be the HIV educator for uh, Houston's gay community. And I thought, that sounds perfect. I think that's exactly what I want to do. And that's what I started doing. And I ended up doing that for 10 years before moving to Austin and working for the HIV Wellness Center, which was even a more perfect job at that point. Yeah. Uh, and, and I loved wellness education. I love putting together uh, different educational forums and such to teach people everything they needed to know about just about anything. And that's kind of where I was in my life. And this was in the late 90s. And at that point, there were finally effective treatments for the first time. And after living for, gosh, at that point, at least 12, 13 years with HIV, they finally had something that could stop the virus from replicating. And if it can't replicate, you're not going to end up getting AIDS. And if you don't get AIDS, you this disease doesn't end up killing you. And so suddenly people started living 
with HIV instead of just waiting to die. And that was pretty powerful to have options like that. And suddenly then I had to reevaluate my life yet again. Mm -hmm. Now that I'm not dying and I've been doing this for 12, 13 years, is this really exactly what I want to be doing? And I wasn't certain of that. So different generations are dealing with HIV in different ways because of technology and science, basically. If you had caught HIV in this generation, how do you think you would have coped with it and how would it affected your life considering the medical breakthroughs that have happened? Hmm. Well, once you get beyond the fear of dying, you know, that I've got something that could kill you. Well, today, really, it's not going to kill you. As long as you catch it early and you treat it, you essentially, it's just a chronic illness that you have to stay on top of. And thus, it doesn't necessarily have to be something that cuts your life short and you have to reevaluate your life. You just have to learn how to deal with living with HIV. And it has its own issues, different issues of, you know, who do you tell? When do you tell? Uh, is it an issue? Uh, you know, is transmission even an issue today? If you're on medication and your viral load is extremely low or undetectable at all, they've actually now say, at least the, the science is saying that you can't spread the virus to someone else if it's undetectable. Now, I've been wondering that for about 10 years that, well, if it's undetectable, then you don't have enough virus in you to cause any harm, but can it be spread to someone else? They say today, no, actually, they don't think you can spread the virus when it's at that low level, which makes sense in, in the whole scale of viremia and, and viral illnesses. But it would still be an issue because I do counsel people who are HIV positive, who still deal with the emotional and the psychological trauma of having something that they knew almost all their lives at this point that it was a possibility, and but they never thought it could happen to them. Again, mm. it's like, well, that sort of thing only happens to other people, not someone young, not someone healthy, not someone like me. And then they get it, and then they have to realize, oh, I guess I'm like everyone else. <laughs> so... <laughs> So it's still an issue. It's just that I'm way too old for them to relate to me. So that's why I had to get out of the field by the time I was in my 40s. No one was going to listen to, certainly no one in their 20s is going to listen to someone in their 40s say, hey, you need to be careful about this disease because you could get it like I could. They just look at me like, oh, no, old man, I, I can't get it. The You're old, of, of course. Yeah. The cheek of them. You know, I'm, exactly. I'm so I'm I'm, re I'm offended for people when, you know, when you say that. It's crazy. It's it's human behavior. You can't, you can't really, well, you can get offended by it, but you can also just say it's just the way people are. And you have to just sometimes learn to just accept people where they're at in their lives at that point. I really wish that people could learn from my lessons in life and not have to go through the same mistakes I did. But now I realize, no, most everyone has to go through the same stuff on their own. They just can't learn from other people usually. Not in these cases. <laughs> You come across as deeply compassionate, which I believe is genuine, and it's shown in your work that you've told us about. So what are you doing professionally now? Ah, well, the field I got into, which I just sort of fell into, I guess, I, I saw a friend of mine teaching a, a class on Excel, and he would just get up there and tell stories and be funny, tell jokes and such, and, and yet teach people all day long about Excel. And I thought, Oh, you could take a boring subject and make it fun <laughs> and teach people. I'd love to do something like that because I've been teaching people about health and wellness 
what could I teach people? And at the time, I thought there was nothing I could teach people. And yet I went to work for a company that one of their first assignments was, could you, would you be willing to teach people about team building and leadership? And I said, I have no idea what, what kind of materials would I have to work with? And they handed me their materials and I started teaching from their materials and learning as I went and eventually became an expert on workplace issues, especially interpersonal workplace issues, team building, leadership development, customer service, communication, uh, conflict resolution, emotional intelligence, productivity and time management. And I just started taking on these courses and teaching these courses. And as I taught, you get challenged by questions and you have to find those answers and learn how to, how to teach people these topics and learn. I love teaching people the keys of how to be successful in the world, whether personally or professionally, which if you had asked me when I was eight years old, what do you want to do for a living? You know, when you grow up, what do you want to do? And at the time I was dealing with a lot of people who were very unhappy in their lives. And mm. I said, I, I would really love to learn how to teach people to be happier. That's what I would love. If I could find the perfect job, that would be the perfect job. And that's what I do now. I teach people how to be happier in their lives, how to get better results, how to make choices that they're satisfied with. Uh, you know, whether it's uh, how to deal with their emotions or whether it's how to deal with other people, how to resolve conflicts or resentments, all of these things that get in the way of our lives. I can show you simple techniques that can help you overcome those issues, get over those issues and move beyond. And right. I love teaching people those things. To me, they're clear and easy. And so, uh, you know, because I nothing I teach people is something that they don't already know, such as the only way you know that you were clear when you spoke to someone is they would have to repeat back what you said in their own words, like how they understood your message. And you would have to agree, yes, that's what I meant. If you don't do that, all communication is assumption. You're assuming you were clear. They assume they understood, and you both are probably wrong. <laughs> I like that. Both probably wrong. I really like that. Yeah. But it's been amazing speaking to you. It really has. Um, you've taught me a lot today, you know, and I really, like I said earlier, um, your positivity is amazing because it influences others. I know you, you said it's a choice, which is, is great. Hopefully we can get into that deeper on another time about positivity being a choice. But mm -hmm. certainly your presence is a positive one. And I can see how you help people completely. Well, thank you. I look forward to an opportunity to come back. Thanks so much, Bart. All <laughs> right. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Please do hit the subscribe button, leave a comment, share it with friends, or give us a five-star rating. We'd really appreciate it. And join us next week for another fabulous guest.